The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So most of you know I've been doing a series of talks based on Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind and the Way, and we're now on chapter 11 and chapter 12. In this section, he's talking a lot about the right attitude, the right way to hold our sitting practice. And if we really get that, then we know the right attitude in life. It's really sitting practice is a microcosm for how to move through the world. It's not like we do that and then it allows us to live, but it's really direct living. We're learning to be free. <clears throat> and I think that's really important to remember because it's so easy to turn meditation practice into some project that's in the service of something else. But it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, if we want to be free, if we want our heart, mind, to be unburdened and uh, free of stress, free of greed, free of aversion, then that's what we practice. We practice being in the moment, relating, right? Because that's what we are. As a being, we relate, right? We are relating with what? We're relating with all the conditions in the present moment, all the mental and physical conditions in the present moment. So we're practicing relating in a way that's not a burden, that doesn't lead to a burden. You know, there's no agitation in the way that we're relating. And that's great, because then it actually doesn't matter what the particular conditions of the present moment are. We could be hot, we could be bothered, we could be very happy and calm. The question really is, how am I relating? How is the mind relating to those conditions? Am I getting attached to the calm? Am I getting averse to the agitation? Last week I started talking about chapter 11, which I think is entitled Noticing Space. And this is, a, I, for me especially, I like this metaphor for this path of awareness that we're all interested in. So the Buddha taught a path, a very pragmatic way of teaching. So he didn't say, friends, there is this truth here. Believe me, there is this truth here. He didn't talk so much about the goal of practice. What he taught is, there's a path. There's something to do with your life. If you do those things, you'll notice an effect that you're like. Right? You know, and we can call that effect creeping spaciousness, creeping freedom. We just start feeling uh, like we have a heart or mind that knows how to be a human being. And, you know, being a human being means there are ups and downs. The Buddha talks about this in, in terms of the eight vicissitudes of life. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. So that's what it means to be a human being. These eight things are always happening. Sometimes we have a lot of praise. Sometimes we have a lot of blame. Sometimes a lot of pleasure. Sometimes a lot of pain. So we're always sort of moving through these eight winds, eight vicissitudes. And the question is, how do we be free? How is this mind, heart, how is it going to be free 
in the midst of swinging between those eight things? How can we be free? And this freedom, we can think of this freedom in, in a very, uh, in a more concrete way, like a more present moment way, because freedom's it's just a concept in a way. So how do we ground that concept in something that we directly experience? And so there are a lot of words, and they're still words, but they're pointing more to a direct experience, like spaciousness or space. Because then that's something actually that uh, evokes a kind of orientation. So the question is, how do we move through ups and downs in life with spaciousness? And it's interesting, just that word helps us a lot because normally when we move through ups and downs in our lives, the mind gets very uh, fixated, pays attention to what's happening. It's part of our survival mechanism to be, re- you know, to be really attentive to things that are dangerous and really attentive to things we think we need for survival, you know, like a mate or like a, a food or shelter or respect. <laughs> you know, psychological survival depends on people caring about us or liking us or thinking we're great. So that we might also fixate on those things. So when we uh, when we start reflecting on freedom or spaciousness, then it kind of gives us another orientation. It, it really suggests a little bit like, well, how do we actually practice meditation? So instead of our normal tendency, which is to fixate on the conditions while we're sitting or while we're living our life, instead we're being asked to notice the space. The space meaning whatever is not the condition. Now, we don't notice the space by reacting to the conditions, like thinking there are too many thoughts in my mind to see the space. I've got to get rid of these thoughts. That's not how we notice the space. We notice space or freedom by not getting confused, not being confused by the conditions. So we let thoughts come and go. We let sensations come and go, sounds come and go. We're not repressing those. We're not indulging in them. We're letting life unfold. But we're not. We're practicing not being confused by the conditions. Like even now, there are conditions, right? There's the sound of my voice and whatever those words I'm speaking, whatever that means to you. So there's meaning, there's the sound, the actual sound, all the other conditions of our bodies right now, all the particular qualities of our mind, the attitude or mood we have right now, sensations of warmth or coolness. And so one of the ways that we can evoke space is completely opening, being receptive to the conditions of the mind and body, but not fixating on anything. So when we hear a car drive by, It's possible not to do anything with that sound, right? To just hear that sound. Or if you're feeling now, because the fans are on, if you're feeling some of the air touching your skin, we could either react by thinking about that experience, like, oh, I really like it, maybe if I were over here it would be better, or I don't like it. 
or we could just let that sensation be. The more that we can be sensitive in the present moment and not confused by the conditions, not reacting to the conditions, but not oblivious to them, the more we just start noticing space. But we could also go a whole lifetime and maybe you know, an infinite number of lifetimes without noticing space. Just like you know how it is, some days it's like one obsession after another, one fixation after another. The mind just locks in, and whenever that locking in is over, the mind locks into something else. Sometimes I just let my mind do this. I kind of wander around like a crazy guy, you know, where I'll sort of start a project, start doing the dishes, and then a thought will arise, oh, i got to call that person. And I'll go call that person, and on the way to call that person, I'll notice, you know, some other mess or some other project. And, I'll, and then and, uh, I'll, I'll sort of do this intentionally, and I'll intentionally just sort of watch that part of my mind just sort of jumping around, fixating. And see, as soon as, like, I'm about to do this, but my mind, there's a, there's a condition arising, right? I see something, and then I think, right, the, the sight of that mess, like that, all that paperwork that was supposed to be done three days ago, and then there's a thought about it, yeah, I see it, and then there's a thought about it, and then the mind fixates on it, and meaning that there, we become blind in a sense. We become blind to space that this scene and this thought about all this work I should have done three days ago, that that's all happening in this space of the present moment, this, the totality of this scene here. And the mind goes blind. And then in that blindness, in that box, we feel, you know, very, we have a very specific conditioned reaction. i got to do this. Or it isn't fair that I have to do this. So the conditioned reaction can be quite different depending on the particular box we've fallen into, we've gotten fixated on. But we have a, a very predictable reaction, and then we're just living that box until something is able to get in, another condition, and the mind fixates on that, and all of a sudden we're out of that box, and in a few short moments we're in another box. And we go from box to box to box. So in our meditation practice, having a sense that that's what's going on, we, we want to be careful not to just do the same thing in our meditation practice, which is why we emphasize right attitude, like non-attainment. Because if we just came and I said, please watch your breath, even if I said it in a gentle way like that, you know, not kind of in a demanding way, but just said something really soft and easy, like just observe your breath. Well, we'd immediately get in a box. It's like we'd sit down with that instruction, and we'd look. And if we found the breath, then chances are we'd immediately judge it. Like, is this right? Is this the right kind of breath to have? Is it too deep? Is it too smooth, too rough? Or if we couldn't feel our breath, we'd react by, oh, I knew I wouldn't be good at this meditation thing. So this is, this is how our minds are. We turn things into fixations, including meditation practice. So that's why it's nice to remind ourselves over and over again 
nothing to do, nowhere to go. It's about practicing being free with the particular conditions of this moment. In other words, not struggling with whatever the conditions are. And if they're really pleasant, we tend to struggle by trying to hold on to those really pleasant conditions. If it's really unpleasant, we tend to struggle by trying to fix our life. If it's really neutral, we struggle by thinking something's wrong, you know? Like, either it's really bad and I just haven't seen how it's bad yet, or it's really good and I haven't figured out how it's really good. But we don't relax. In any of those three situations, a neutral experience, a pleasant experience, an unpleasant experience, we react instead. So last week, uh, if you were here last week, I mentioned two things that Ajahn Sumedho said just to help, just practical ways to help identify the presence of space. Meaning what we're seeing in a moment of space is we're seeing that any particular fixation that we're inclined to, to dive into, that that exists in this totality of the present moment. And that really undermines the power of those fixations. It's hard to get fixated when we remember the totality of the present moment. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So the two ways that he mentions, two specific ways that he mentions that can be really conducive to just having a sense of non-fixation, the space of the present moment, is uh, one was just listening to the sound of silence. That's what Ajahn Sumedho calls it. It's nice if you can be in a quiet room. It's sometimes easier to notice. But there's actually, um, in all the different sense gates, the visual sense gate, the auditory sense gate, the tactile sense gate, I don't know about, I'm not so sure about smelling and tasting, but I would assume it's there too. And even the mind, there's sort of a, uh, a way to access space just by listening. So if we're, if we're on the level of the body, then we're listening to sensations or we're feeling sensations in the body. And again, mostly what we first notice are the specific conditions of the body hardness, softness, warmth, coolness, tingling, flowing, heldness or stiffness, stillness. So we, we tend to feel those particular conditions of the body when we pay attention to the body. But the more the mind doesn't fixate, then you might notice at times in your practice, whether you're formally sitting or just doing your day, this more pervasive experience of sensation. It's more like a pervasive vibration. So it's not like we don't notice the specific conditions of the body, like there's coolness here, you know, cool air touching the skin. But there's a more subtle and pervasive, uh, it's almost like champagne bubbles, that sometimes people describe it that way, like a pervasive vibration. It's also sensation. It's just much more subtle, and we tend not to notice it because our minds are, notice, are, are in the habit of noticing specific conditions and then reacting to those specific conditions. 
And we tend not to notice the neutral and the generic. And this is true with hearing, too. And this is what Ajahn Sumedho teaches as a technique sometimes to people, which is hearing the sound of silence. So in this room now, there are a lot of specific sounds. There's the sound of my voice, the sound of traffic, you know, the fans, people moving about. But there's, if we just sort of relax as we pay attention even more and more keenly to hearing, but relax this tendency to fixate on particular sounds, you can begin to notice sort of a background sound, like a humming or a hissing, a shh. And again, there's nothing special or mystical except that observing sound in that way, observing that quality of sound, uh, helps the mind remember space, not fixation. So in a way, we're going from fixation or uh, sort of, uh, yeah, I guess fixation to kind of a, a totality. And you know, our mind has this capacity to kind of get really fixed and really non-fixed, right? Because if we can get really fixed, then we can move in the other direction too, non-fixed. And we can practice that. And here's the important thing though. It doesn't, for some people, the, the way to access space will be really to open to all the sense gates at the same time. So you're noticing mind, sound, smell, taste, tactile experience, hearing, seeing. But you can have the same experience of space being very specific with the breath, for example, with one particular condition. Because wherever you look, whether you look with breath or specificity, you see the same thing. You see Dhamma the way it is, which is this quality of, uh, of non-fixation. So what we're really learning to do is we, we're learning to relax some part of the mind that we don't even realize is active. There's a part of the mind or heart that's very active. We can call it clinging or grasping. And it's so consistently active we don't even notice it. Like we could interview every human being on this planet and there wouldn't be too many if you asked them, are you clinging? <laughs> Is your mind clinging right now? You know? probably 99.9% .9 of the people on this planet would say, no, I'm not clinging, I'm not grasping. But our minds, you know, they might say, well, a moment ago I was, but as soon as you ask me that question, I stop. But the mind is always grasping, like trying to impress the interviewer, that's grasping. <laughs> you know, trying to get the right answer, give the right answer, that's grasping, that's clinging. Not caring, is also clinging, you know, oh, this is just stupid. But that's clinging too. So what we need to do is, uh, through the power of just paying attention, we have to, whether we're looking in a broad way, opening in all directions to all the different sense gates, or we're looking at something very specific like mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of hearing, we're using that quality of mindful attention to illuminate 
something we're not yet seeing, and then to let it go. And you see, we can't let go of whatever it is we're not seeing. We can't let go of something we're not seeing. We actually have to see the clinging, the grasping, before we can let go of it. Any moment where we let go of grasping, there's a moment of space or freedom or non-affliction, non-fixation in the mind. The mind is, in that moment, not doing what it almost always is doing, which is creating tension, this subtle, we could call it subtle existential or spiritual tension. This angst, this feeling like I, as a human being, that this moment isn't sufficient for contentment that somehow happiness or contentment lies outside of this moment. Does that sound familiar to you? Is anybody in the room perfectly content? And isn't it It's so amazing? I mean, probably one of the most amazing things is how arrogant we are to think that we know for sure that we're not content. <laughs> it's like, we never, have you ever, have you ever spent time examining whether you're actually correct in thinking that you're not content? We just assume we're right. I know I'm not content. And don't distract me from trying to get content. So we're, see, we set off solving the problem that doesn't exist. And that's the experience of suffering or dukkha. Solving a problem that doesn't exist. Now, the thing is, as soon as we start trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist, we actually do have a problem. <laughs> this, is why, this is why the delusion is so thick. It's, it makes perfect sense that we're screwed up. <laughs> because we actually are suffering trying to solve a problem that isn't there. And we always try to solve that problem in a way that won't solve that problem, the actual problem. So I said I'd get back to Dhamma. And this is an interesting word in Buddhism. Uh, sometimes I like the phrase, as it isness. As it isness. That's what Dhamma means. The way it is. As it isness. But it really has a sense of how is it to be a human being when the heart or mind isn't fixated, isn't clinging. That's Dhamma. So when we have a moment of that kind of awareness, the awareness where the mind isn't fixating, isn't reacting to any of the conditions in the present moment. My wife taught for a number of years um, a ballet company. Uh, she was a choreographer and teacher uh, with a ballet company, but she's a modern dancer. And uh, she always talked, I mean, it's true, wherever, whatever lineage we're brought up in, you know, whether we're brought up as sort of a typical guy or a ballerina, princess type, or, you know, however we've been conditioned in our lives, then we tend to present ourselves. We've learned to present ourselves. Everybody in this room, myself included, you know, right now we're presenting ourselves as something, to some degree. And uh, we get lost there. So when we wake up to Dhamma, the as it isness, it's like the awareness 
the sense of what the moment is needs to go beyond any limitations. Limitations meaning any concept of who we are or what's going on. We, we're not getting, we don't need to get rid of the concepts, but we're not trapped by the concepts. So it's almost like we move beyond who we think we are. And so when Wynne would choreograph a modern dance on these people that, had, in, in, in the ballet world, people start really young. You know, literally four years, five years of age, kids start taking ballet classes, and they they sort of learn how to present them how to present themselves as a body in the world, and especially on stage. And so then, when when wants them to do something that's not that, it's a it's a little bit like uh, learning to see the uh, that this is just a concept. It's just uh, a way that was learned. And it doesn't define. There's something beyond that. It doesn't sort of define the whole universe. Now, we have that same sort of projection about what our mind is, what our heart is. And it's like we we don't really know what's outside of that because we're so sure this is who we are. And it's like those dancers, you know, it was like really hard because they, there's some safety in the form that they know. It's really hard to go outside of that form. And it's the same with all of our conditioning. Like whatever your particular set of conditioning or my particular set of conditioning is, we there's some security in that. So to have a moment of dhamma, meaning the mind that's not fixated, so we're experiencing the conditions of the present moment, but not confused by them. It's a completely different kind of moment than the moment we have now when we are reacting to the conditions. We look out, you know, we see, and whether we know it or not, our mind is reacting to what we're seeing and what we're hearing and what we're feeling. As Bhante Gunaratana, a Sri Lankan monk who's been in the United States for many decades now teaching mostly on the East Coast, but he travels around a lot, he says, he describes it this way, I'm paraphrasing him, but the mind fixates on a particular condition and turns it into a concept and then proliferates, you know, one thought leading, leading to another. And so the mind immediately misses 99.9% of what's happening, fixates on one particular condition, and then conceptualizes it and then one concept leading to the next. And so when to open to Dhamma the way it is, it sounds easy, you know, when when we hear about the Buddha's teachings and he says, yes, it's about waking up to Dhamma, waking up to the way it is, we think, well, yeah, I can do that. You know, okay, this is how it is. But it's not so easy to go beyond our fixations, our concepts. We have to be really interested really wholehearted and really humble like we have to we have to understand how pervasive our conditioning is how deluding it is and one way going back to chapter 11 that was chapter 12 a little bit in chapter 11 he he talks about this one way which is spaciousness learning or noticing space learning to see space and one way he talks about in chapter 12, a different way, is he talks about 
and noticing the totality of the present moment. And that's just a, a practice instruction. So think of it that way. Like a, you, we can practice now with your eyes open or closed. And there are the particular conditions. But keep noticing the space in which those conditions are coming and going. Everything is in the field of awareness, nothing outside. If you try to see, then you miss it. It's more about relaxation and receptivity. So if you just work with that as a reflection, you can do that your whole set, or you can do that in moments in your set, and then when that seems a little like the mind's just getting lost in thought, then come back to something a little more concrete, like feeling the breath in the body. And then a couple minutes later, you can just invite your mind, heart, to open to the totality of the present moment, as if it's moving in all direction. Everything is included. Everything belongs. No matter what, everything belongs. That's the feeling of this practice, of the totality of the present moment. Everything belongs, nothing excluded. We have a really important insight here. So in chapter 11, he he gives a particular reflection. Again, these are all practice instructions, noticing space, right? But with this practice, this chapter 12 is called Now is the Knowing. It's really about opening to Dhamma. So now we're not even trying to see space. Even that, in a sense, is too gross of an instruction. This is a more subtle instruction, even. It's really the practice of not doing anything. And what's left is awareness. And what we see, when we can actually do this, then what we notice is that space and the activity in the space are indistinguishable. And maybe you even got a sense of that in the the few seconds of practice we did a moment ago. So when we're sort of letting everything in, everything belongs, opening to the totality of the present moment, it's like the activity, the different conditions that are being known, and the sense of space, it's like they coexist. It's not like you can distinguish them. If we look at any of the conditions, it's like we see space. And you know, in the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism especially, they, they really like playing with this insight. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness is no other than form. It's the great Heart Sutra that uh, gets chanted quite a bit in Mahayana Buddhism. And it's just this insight that the heart and the activity of the heart, the present moment and the activity of the present moment, that they play together and there's no problem 
So we don't want to, we don't even want to rarefy awareness like space. Oh, space is good and the conditions of the present moment are bad because they keep me away from the space. Well, we want to see that the world is the world of conditions, sadness, happiness, pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, sounds of birds, sounds of traffic, that conditions are fundamentally uh, space and form, right? That they're both. And see, it's the missing of the space that we get confused. So we are, we're all always aware of conditions. But we turn conditions into something that they're not. We turn conditions into, we give them uh, a substance that they, they don't quite deserve, and that's diluting. Then we, then it, that, that's the condition that allows greed and aversion to arise. Because we basically have turned conditions into something more than they are. So when you look at the different religious or spiritual traditions, and what mystics and saints have said, you know, they talk about, you know, whether they're out in nature or singing some religious song or praying or doing some service, you know, when they have a mystical experience, they talk about this totality. They talk about this pervasive okayness, like the space is like we could call the divine, and the activity, the conditions, is what we call the world. You know, so and the insight that mystics always have, regardless of the particular religious tradition, is that the divine is right here in the world, and that you know we don't need to get to heaven. It's right here. It's like this uh, interview with Mother Teresa that I like to uh, quote or just talk about, where somebody was observing her and her work. Um, I think when she was in India and uh, just servicing the poorest of the poor, people often who are near death, um, with bad illness, bad health, and the person at some point asked her, you know, how must be really hard to see so many suffering people, so much suffering. And that, she said, absolutely not. It's not hard. It's a joy. I see Jesus everywhere. And it's a joy to serve. And so I think this is the insight that mystics have. And it's, and it's something that we can specifically cultivate. That's why we sit down, because it's just a little simpler to do it if we find a quiet spot, sit in a comfortable way, than if we're out about in our daily life, talking, moving. It's just harder. But we still want to practice there. But specifically, we want to create a ritual where we have a quiet place, a quiet time of the day, enough time, given our schedule, to sit and to use various techniques in a way that, that are in the service of this insight, insight into Dhamma. So Dhamma, again, means the mind or the heart is knowing the present moment without being confused by fixation or concepts. doesn't mean there aren't concepts or thoughts, but the mind isn't confused by the thought or confused by the concept, like the concept, I'm a meditator, or I'm having a good meditation, or I'm having a bad meditation. So even those thoughts aren't deluding. They're just thoughts. 
and the mind doesn't need to fixate or react to that thought. It can just be a thought. Same with pain. Pain can arise and the mind doesn't need to react to the pain. Even really strong pain can arise. But it takes practice. So we start with ordinary pain. That's why it's important to sit comfortably. And when the pain is overwhelming, to quietly, mindfully adjust the body. Until we develop the depth of practice that can be with deeper and deeper pain or more extreme pain. I mean, eventually we'd like to be able to practice while we're dying. And from what I've seen, it's often really painful when people are dying. So it would be really nice to be able to practice, not getting confused by the conditions when we're dying. To have the mind, heart in both worlds, the world, so we're not repressing or ignoring the conditions, but we're not confused by it. It's like the divine and the world coexisting, not being different. And it fits with what I began with, which is the freedom. The whole point of practice is to practice here and now freedom. I mean, that's what we want. And it's never about, like, I practice pain in order to get free. Or I practice suffering, tension, stress, in order to be free from stress and tension. If we want peace and freedom, then we need to practice peace and freedom. And even if we don't know what that is, we just begin. You know, we start practicing freedom and then realize this isn't freedom. So let me practice something else. You know, like we think freedom will be somehow just to get away from my crazy thoughts. Right? And then we try really hard to get away from our crazy thoughts. And we realize this is stressful. And so we give up eventually. Okay, so it's not about getting away from my crazy thoughts. Well, maybe it's about not having a problem with my crazy thoughts. You know, just letting the crazy thoughts be what they are. Not more than they are, but not less than they are. They are thoughts, but can we let them be thoughts without turning them into my thoughts that somehow define me? So I'll leave it here so that we have time to check in with each other. Maybe you did some of these practices this last week that you'd like to share with the group, or if you have any questions about the talk, or just experiences in your life that seem relevant to what I've said tonight. So what comes to mind? because it's so practical and it's not just software engineers that have that tendency you know a lot of lifestyles that seem to be asking for fixation well two points one is give yourself uh, time every day where the conditions are most conducive to non-fixation and that will give you some experiences that then will allow you to do the second practice, which is in your job, take the insights that you've had, the moments when the mind was less fixated, and and just the memory, 
in a way it's like a body-mind memory. Like you know what it felt like to be relatively free, non-fixated, not caught, non-clinging. In those moments, you kind of bring that body-like memory into the experience of programming. And so you're still programming, but you're remembering the quality of the mind, the non-fixedness of the mind, the non-grasping or clinging in the mind. And you just practice doing your job with that attitude. It's possible to move in that direction. We tend to rationalize that we need to be attached without actually having spent the time examining whether that's true. Like, I have to be attached in order to be a, to be a lover. Or I have to be attached in order to be a parent. That's a big one. I have to be attached in order to uh, try to end this war in Iraq, in Iraq. You know, I have to be attached in order to keep healthy and get myself to the gym. But we haven't actually explored systematically whether that's true. Maybe we could go to the gym. Maybe the showing up at the gym and the lifting the weights and the swimming, maybe that could be uh, as effortless as this nice dry air that blew in yesterday. You know, that was a big deal. I mean, how that happens, how that much air can kind of do that and push all that hot, humid air out, that was a huge effort, but nobody had to do that. And, you know, when you look at a magnificent forest or the Grand Canyon or the solar system, you know, things get done without there being fixation. We're just as much part of nature as the water that cut through the Grand Canyon or the weather that blew in yesterday. And so that's really, it's like letting our programming be a force of nature instead of, I don't know your name, but you doing it, you know. And it's just a a kind of a a fun and beautiful and profound exploration just to see if we can do all of that with freedom. Like for me, running an organization and trying to be free at the same time, that's my practice. (laughs) Someday you can ask me how I'm doing, but not today. (laughs) I don't want to give you the wrong idea. Stacy? I teach drawing and I teach a lot of beginners. And um, we do this exercise where instead of looking at the object, which we're just trained to do constantly, we shift and we look at the space uh-huh, around yeah. it. And it's, it, many people know the term negative space. And it's just, I don't have a question, but it's just really, it's, it's just always thrills me that hands down these beginners when they do negative space drawing, they are just so accurate and so gorgeous. Um, and from the most unskilled of my kids. Yeah. Um, and it, it's the shift to being a, a visual artist and teacher mm-hmm. too. I mean, I'm constantly thinking about the relationship of space to objects. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I just really appreciate your comment. Yeah. And it's, I think that's a, a, a wonderful example. And it, it gives us, you know, when you hear something like that, it just sort of opens up all kinds of possibilities. Like while you're watching me right now talk, you can sort of fixate on me 
or you can just have a sense of the whole space of the room. And you see how it really changes what's going on. All of a sudden, we start to feel intimate with the space. When we're here watching Mark, we tend to be judgmental. Either like thinking he's great or whatever. But but when we're when we go to the negative space, as you called it, Stacy, um, it's like what what arises is metta, intimacy. That's what arises. Because it's non self centered. It's just harder to be fixated when we go to the space. And we can do that in all the sense gates, not just in seeing. And the more you learn it in your meditation practice, the more then you can bring it like into programming or to whatever else you do. You just know how to open to the totality of the present moment. That's what I meant. It's like the, that sort of a generic statement about what Stacy was saying. We're just opening to everything in order to free the mind from its tendency to fixate in the way that it's conditioned to fixate, given the way the conditions are in that moment. And how do we free the mind from that conditioning is we have learned a new way of orienting or a new way of relating. We're relating to Dhamma, which is that totality of the present moment. That's what we're relating to as opposed to what the mind is conditioned to notice and fixate on and react to, which is our normal way. Thanks for that great example. What else comes to mind? Well, I was really struck by your um, example of going from box to box to box. It's kind of interesting because I always think I do that a lot, and I, I think I sometimes think, well, I'm distracted, and at the same time, I think I'm very focused. And what I realized when you were talking about is that, um, yeah, it would be interesting to to just kind of see the broader picture that the habit is to be whatever comes into the screen, like that's the thing that gets this sudden focus. And then, you know, you happen to go downstairs and well, then in front of the screen is, you know, the cat poop needs to be done and you do that and you forgot why you came downstairs. I mean, you know, it was just kind of an interesting way for me to see uh, what that was, yeah. you know. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a combination. But, I mean, just that I think it's just like um, not stepping back enough to, because it's like whatever is in front of this box, the screen, becomes the focus. You know, yeah. it's, just kind of, it's just kind of humorous to me to see. <laughs> and I think part of that is like that animal instinct. When, we're, when, our, when our orientation is towards survival, then, then it's sort of like we're seeing with eyes that want to survive, and everything's in terms of what I need to do to survive. But if instead we have the eyes uh, a being that is interested in freedom, so that's the question. Are we interested in survival, or are we interested in freedom? Or you could maybe say love, if you prefer, instead of freedom, uh, an unconditional love. And that's because we're programmed a lot to want survival. And not just physical survival. For us, given where we live, it's much more about psychological survival. But it's really the same mechanisms as physical survival. You know, needing respect, needing to be loved, needing to be, you know, those sorts of things. It's just really the same. And so you see why it's not so easy, because we have, that's a, that's a serious change. 
we have to give up the need to survive. But you know what? We're not going to survive anyway in the way we think we're, we want to survive. So we might as well give it up because it won't work. And we might as well uh, move in the direction that we can actually move, which is toward freedom. Well, when you were um, doing the meditation, and I really was just kind of focused, you know, I just felt like I was just kind of open to what the bigger picture, so to speak. I really felt like smiling. It was very different. It's a very different feeling. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I just felt a little different. Oh, good. Yeah, and you can actually uh, use that. You can, like, in when we're sitting and we're kind of in a funk, we can remember, no, it's not supposed to be a funk. Maybe maybe this could be okay. And we can actually help our body to help the heart remember what it's like to be relaxed by just smiling a little bit. You can literally put a little smile on your face and it might help you remember what it's like not to be tight. I do that sometimes. And it's, a, it's actually a, a, a standard instruction to put a very slight smile on your face. Not to force it, but just to use it as a practice. So you don't want to kind of get attached to any of these techniques, but just like have a tool chest with a lot of possibilities. And you eventually get an intuitive sense of what might be useful on a, in a particular set. We have a little time. Other thoughts? Is uh, focus more of a sense of object subject and then uh, space more a sense of non-self? I mean, are those direct correlations? Yeah, I think so. Um, but remember, the space would be non-self, but then that the sort of uh, a deeper reflection, deeper insight, is really seeing self, non-self. So itself is not a, they're not really, we're not going from self to non-self. Although that can be a useful instruction, reflection, you know, okay, I'm Mark, I'm a self, I want to be free of the sense of self. But with a deeper insight, we realize there isn't a self who needs to be a non-self. So it's like what I was saying where the activity and the space they coexist, and they're not a problem for one another. They're not incongruous, those two things. Self and non-self coexist. So what we discover with the insight into spaciousness, which is so great, is we discover, discover how to be a self in the world, what that means. It's not that we don't exist. It's just that we're confused about what this existence is. And so we have to understand space in order to understand what the condition of this mind and body is and what it isn't. Does that, does that make sense? So um, we just want to be careful in terms of uh, turning into good and versus bad. You know, self is bad, non-self is good. It's really about understanding that that's really what we want. And so by opening to this world that we're not usually seeing, which we're calling the space, by opening to that world, it's not only beautiful to open to that world, it's freeing to open to that world, but the best thing about opening to that world is it changes our understanding of this world that we're living in right now, this conventional world. 
basically it allows us to be in this world without attachment. But we're still we still function as a mind and body, you know, as a partner, as a friend, as a employee. But we're not. Uh, but we don't suffer being a self, a so-called self, because we understand what it is and what it isn't, or we're not confused by the concept of self or the experience of the mind and body. So that's the Buddha. You know that the Buddha is a a term. You know that we use to point, or enlightenment we, is a term we use to point to moments when a person is a person without being weighed down by being a person, without being burdened by having a mind and body. Mostly we live being burdened by having a mind and body. And then sometimes we have moments where we're relatively unburdened as a mind and body. And that's a moment of relative freedom or relative enlightenment. And then some moments we have where we're completely unburdened. And those are moments of enlightenment and freedom. And the idea is to practice in a way where we have more of those moments where we're unburdened as a mind and body. There's freedom instead of a feeling of weight. Let's leave it here. We'll just take a second or a couple seconds to breathe together. Be at ease here together. Letting go of the words. and appreciating our deepest aspiration for our lives. So why not aspire to express this deep peace and wisdom and compassion, this great ease and freedom as a way of taking care of ourselves and taking care of all beings, all things. May all beings be at ease. Thanks everyone for coming. Nice to practice together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.